Hey, it's Jeff here. And before we get started, a quick ask. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, please help us grow. And you can do that by telling a friend about the Ed Surge podcast on social media or signing up for our Ed Surge podcast newsletter at edsurge.com. Click on the word newsletter at the top right. All right, here's this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I am the managing editor here at EdSurge. It's popular these days to argue that we're about to see this sudden wave of colleges fail, that a bunch of colleges will go out of business because of this pandemic move to online education. Just for example, a prominent person making that case has been Scott Galloway, a popular NYU marketing professor. COVID-19 is the meteor about to rock the academic world. In a word, higher education is about to suffer the mother of all implosions. That was a quick sample of Galloway's self-described rant on the issue um, that he posted on YouTube. As he's saying that, there's a video clip of a building being demolished by explosives. So part of that argument is that colleges are just not changing fast enough and that many are going to be extinct like dinosaurs as a result. This kind of rhetoric... Like I said, it's out there a lot. It, it really bothers our guest today. That guest is Clay Shirky. He is also a professor at NYU. He's the vice provost for educational technologies there as well. And just like Galloway, Shirky is an influential voice on how technology is changing our culture. My favorite Clay Shirky book, and he has a, a few of them that have become bestsellers, is one called Here Comes Everybody, The Power of Organizing Without Organizations. To Shirky, the story of how higher education is changing these days is way more complicated than a building collapsing in a heap of dust. To help change the discussion, Shirky started writing a newsletter last year called The Continual Transformation of Higher Education. The word continual is in parens, signaling he's going for nuance here. About once a month, he's been putting out a new essay about the complex forces that are acting on higher ed these days. And he's highlighting some ways he thinks a true transformation is happening. As he sees it, sure, there might be some colleges that fail, but he doesn't see any immediate giant collapse. He wants to see a conversation happen that is grounded in a deeper understanding of how colleges work and what their role is in society, instead of just tossing out hot sound bites. I see people starting with assumptions about what online education can or should do to the price of a college education. And I think not only is what they're saying wrong, but the background assumptions they're making about how higher ed works are not even in line with what the American system actually does. We've actually been quoting Shirky's newsletter recently a couple times at our higher ed newsletter, and he's been sparking great discussions on social media. So I wanted to dig in to his arguments some more. Just to set some context before we get started, we are talking about the future of higher ed and what kind of options students end up having and, and whether they're affordable. So the stakes are high and they impact pretty much all levels of education and the workforce. When I connected with Clay Shirky just the other day, we jumped right in to one of his newsletter's key topics. A question of how big that any one college can grow with online education. And it's not just an abstract question. Since a couple of nonprofit universities have had huge growth online in the past decade, mainly Southern New Hampshire University, Arizona State University, and Western Governors University. It's not about 
whether or not Zoom becomes the platform or somebody invents some new video tool for specific to higher ed or whatever. It's about have Western governors in southern New Hampshire figured out how to scale limitlessly? And is the number of students who enroll in higher ed going to continue to shrink or are we going to find some way to reverse it and grow? And really, once you look at those two macro forces of scale, the technologies that implement any given large-scale online institution become much less relevant. And I think that that's the piece that I think I'm most, in a way, that's the thing I'm most addressing in the newsletter is you can't even think clearly about what the technology enables or which direction the technology is moving without understanding that there's some really major macro forces going on here that, that they are the platform in which the technology is implemented, not the other way around. You mentioned Southern New Hampshire, Western Governors. These are these mega universities, as you described, more than 100,000 students because of the online. But um, there are a few of these, a handful of them that, that have come along. Um, and then the question is what the interplay between a the traditional college, like the one you're at at NYU, and and the um, and these big players ends up being like what? And so again, could you 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 quickly went through it? But like, what are you what do you think are the most likely kind of quadrants of of possibility? Yeah, the two. Um, well, the, I think you know the the two biggest quadrants uh, are one on the on the institutional side. The growth of Western governors over the 25, 27 years of its existence and the incredibly rapid growth of Southern New, Hampshire's in the last, you know, Southern New Hampshire in the last 10 years look to be different than the way Phoenix grew when it grew very quickly between 2006 and 2010. University of Phoenix, uh, the, the, the for-profit powerhouse, got up to almost half a million students, right? And it looked for a brief moment at the beginning of the decade like this was it. This was the Amazon of, of higher ed. It was a for-profit, and you're right, it came out, and it was really what the first big online provider at a time where a lot of traditional colleges didn't do much degrees online. And, and what Phoenix figured out, interestingly, is that uh, the barrier to college success for so many students is actually the inconvenience of college rather than the ability to do college level coursework. And so they started out in the 1970s uh, as essentially a competitor for community colleges who would do a better job of locating their campuses with access to major highways and good parking. They had a real parking design philosophy. And it seems like, well, that's hardly an academic concern, except Phoenix correctly understood that many people were being locked out of a college education because of inconvenience. Phoenix tanked because Obama era regulations bit and Phoenix has lost, you know, more than 80 percent of its students. And to be fair, those regulations were around the success of the of the degrees those students got. Those right. regu- I don't I don't mean to suggest that Phoenix was somehow uh, hard done by Phoenix. Phoenix was basically asset stripping Pell Grants uh, and having abysmal graduation rates. And the Phoenix Phoenix was a terrible institution. Um, what's interesting about Western governors and and latterly Southern New Hampshire is that they're both nonprofits. Um, they have, in their different ways, figured out ways that when there's more demand, there's more supply. And I can tell you, you know, among the you know the the kind of colleges that make it to the top of the U.S. news list. Demand does not create supply, right? The entire, you know, we're so selective because 
we had 100,000 students apply for 6,000 slots or whatever, that the demand just creates increased deflection. I think uh, Akil Bello says highly rejective colleges is a way of describing this group. Highly rejective colleges. That's the Harvards and, and frankly, even the NYUs to an extent. No, no, we, we, have, we have laterally entered that, uh, entered that category as well. Southern New Hampshire, Western governors, not highly rejective. Um, and I'm not using them as examples of members of a class. They are the only two that are a- operating at this scale now because of the collapse of Phoenix. Uh, and they are still both on a growth trajectory, which is also unusual. Um, if, you know, we, don't, we haven't seen the official IPETS numbers, but Southern New Hampshire is saying it has added more students during the pandemic than attend all but the 60 largest institutions in America. They added 35,000 students in a single year. Wow. So if, if there is no natural upper limit, uh, for physical colleges, the natural upper limit was about 60,000 students. You had a lot of Midwestern campuses. You had Florida. Right. You had your Ohio States and your... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You could get to about 60,000 and then it just topped out. Topped out for political reasons. Other, other cities in your state wanted a regional campus, branch campus. Uh, it topped out because just the amount of infrastructure you have to manage when you have a town of 60,000 is pretty significant. Sure. Uh, there, that limit went away online. What we don't know is, is there a new limit? Is there some administrative limit past which nobody's going to get over 200,000 students and also deliver a good education? Or could each of these two institutions get to a half million on their own? Because at some point, you start with a zero-sum competition, and if Western governors in southern New Hampshire are growing, somebody is shrinking. So that's the other big question is Nathan Grew, who we've talked about and who you've had on the show, um, says there's this demographic cliff. It, you can see it very clearly. It's coming in 2025. It hits the upper Midwest and the Northeast hardest. Uh, the one thing that Grew holds out as a possibility is if there is a dramatic shift in the number of underrepresented minorities and people who would otherwise not ordinarily have attended college because his entire analysis is based on statistically this is how likely a person in this income decile of this uh, race or ethnicity is to attend college we multiply that by the population we get the answer so if for example there's a major shift in the number of hispanics attending college that number could reinflate the 2025 demographic cliff would not be as severe so if you, if you cross-tab those two things, right, there is an upper limit to institutions or there isn't, and there's growth or shrinking in the students, you get four really different scenarios, right? The world in which Western governors in southern New Hampshire tops out, but there are more students, that's the world that every little college in America wants, right? I do not have to compete with behemoths, and it's not all zero-sum because there'll be more students next year. The opposite of that, where Western governors in southern New Hampshire just have unchecked growth, up to half a million there are a lot of colleges that enroll a thousand or fewer students that are just going to be done in by the twin scissors of declining college age population and major online institutions that just continue to grow at this scale. There is this idea that the online colleges don't capture, which is you do note there is still this um, demand for the experience, the coming of age experience. And so could that also play a role in checking the growth of, of these 
mega universities online? I mean, that's 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 part of the story we don't know. Certainly, for for a significant class of students, the college experience is part of what you go to college to get. And by that, I mean party life, social life, uh, a kind of separate from your home, live someplace else, meet new people. The coming of age thing. Right, yeah. exactly. There are a lot of late teenagers for whom the two major life transitions of leaving high school to go to college and leaving college to go work in the world are at least in part about breaking and reforming their social networks and social connections. People who attend online degree programs are, on average, older. They're likelier to be married. They're likelier to have children. They're much likelier to have jobs. They're likely to have jobs that don't have entirely predictable hours. So the question, I think, isn't so much, is there going to be a market for the you know, undergraduates playing Frisbee on the verdant quad? Yes, of course, there'll be a market for that. Worldwide, that, that is America's, uh, you know, one of America's draws for students to come here. The, the midpoint between the highly utilitarian, highly convenient, cost-capped online degree and hanging around Princeton we don't know where that midline is, right? And it yeah. may be that the flagship state schools do fine. They probably will. But that the branch campuses and especially the community colleges suffer in competition with online. And this is, I think, the big open question is in the trade-off of convenience and cost versus experience, there's no way that, that somebody's saying, well, should I go to southern New Hampshire or Oberlin? Right. It's just it's it's if someone has the resources and the, the you know, affinity and, and life interest and all the rest of that to go to Oberlin, they're going to go to Oberlin. Um, but that's not who that's not who Southern New Hampshire is picking up. And ominously, uh, for the community colleges in particular, they saw a pretty significant additional downturn on an already secular decline during the pandemic, while online online only or heavily online degree-oriented institutions saw growth. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing that was keeping many communi community colleges from going online, even in a kind of hybrid way, some, you know, some in-person classes around advanced machining and then your math classes online, is that they didn't have the infrastructure and the students didn't have the infrastructure. And one of the things COVID has kicked everybody towards is if you have to work remotely, you figure out a way to do it. It certainly has not worked well for everybody. There are certainly still significant gaps in broadband and all the rest of it. But a much higher percentage of students are ready for at least partially online school than were in 2019. And the fight is really going to be between community colleges and these couple of mega universities over whose services those students by the middle of the decade. Now, Back to more traditional campuses, you talk about which kind of colleges are the most innovative these days. And you mentioned the case of Sweetbriar College, which was all over the news, especially a few years ago, and it was about about to collapse. Um, can but but it's but it's come back. So can you talk about that example for a minute? Yeah. So Sweetbriar Sweetbriar for me was really uh, just watching that unfold, because I remember, you know, that shows up on the front page of the New York Times uh, one day. And um, 
the trustees voted to essentially wind it down. They did what they thought was the fiscally responsible thing. They said, you know, they we were got broke, right? yeah, we're, yeah. We, you know, we got some money in the endowment, but but in terms of revenue, all the trend lines are going down. And rather than, you know, pull what we would later call a Mount Ida and tell students in April that their institution is going away in May, we're going to we're going to do this in a, in a respectful fashion. Uh, people blew up. Uh, students, alumni, faculty, staff all blew up. Uh, the state got involved. Uh, a Save Sweetbriar plan came together. The, college, the, the trustees rescinded their, their shutdown notice. Um, there was a brief interim period, and then Meredith Wu came in, the new president. And in a single summer, Wu put together this collection of, of you know, a faculty committee, but with, with input from a whole variety of, of sources. And they transformed departments into larger interdisciplinary clusters. They cut the number of majors from 33 to 17. It was massive change in a short period. Uh, and watching that story unfold, um, while at the same time watching the list of the other colleges that happened to be closing at the same time, really sort of told me two things about the American, the American system as it is now. First of all, the colleges you've heard of are not the ones that will close, and the colleges will close will be not the ones you've heard of. Sweetbriar, for whatever reason, had a national reputation, even though it was very small. And it had a rich, dedicated alumni network who were willing to come forward and support it with donations. Same thing <coughs> has happened to Antioch. Same thing has happened to Hampshire. There are a handful of schools whose, uh, whose alumni base will allow them, in a moment of crisis, to deploy additional resources. Enough people had heard of them. Enough powerful people. Right. But the other thing, you said that, that Sweetbriar almost imploded, but in fact, it was like one of those, you know, I flatlined in the, in the ER and then my heartbeat started again. Meredith Wu is a transformative figure, no doubt, but she would not have been able to walk into Sweetbriar as it existed in 2015 and transformed it. It had to close. The trustees effectively had to tell everybody that unless they changed, this college was going away. And that's where the, the you know, essentially the, the, the end point of that article, which is transformation is desperation plus chutzpah, right? You need something that comes along and tells the community not transforming is not an option. That, as academics, our favorite option is everything is 2% better next year, right? No big changes, not even big changes on the upside, frankly. Um, just everything is 2% better next year. That's great. I, I could live with that forever. And you note the recent history of higher ed has been this ongoing success um, in, in generational memory. Right, right. And that, I will tell you, a, a core thesis of the newsletter, to the point that I even find myself getting tired of sort of rewriting these paragraphs, is the fact that an entire generation of academic leadership currently in the top positions were brought into the fold by people who had only ever seen constant growth, right? Between 1945 and 1975, which is to say our senior leaders, mentors, and instructors had only ever seen higher education get larger and richer at the same time. To the point where Bill Bowen, no, no slouch in the thinking department, famously wrote a book saying, oh, my God, by the end of the 90s, the demand for humanities PhDs is just going to rebound. It's everyone's going to retire and those positions are going to open up. Um, you know, I did a whole 
you know, a, a piece in the newsletter on quit lit, on what was essentially graduate students coming to realize often too late that the abundance that they had assumed, and in some cases even been assured of by, by mentors and senior people in their field, had gone away and no one had told them. And that, that transformation, right, the fact that the golden age hangover persists until now. I mean, the golden age ended on paper in 1975. It's been a while. But it's been a while. But everybody who who joined the academy during those years was was essentially weaned on constant growth. Um, So the attitude has persisted much, much longer than the economic reality. And frankly, part of what's going on in higher ed right now is we're having the wily coyote has walked off the cliff but not yet realized it moment. Uh, wow. You know, a quit lit is, I think, a sort of canary in the coal mine of that. When you look at Aaron Bertram or Rebecca Schumann, and they, they are, you know, walking out with new humanities PhDs, and then they look down, that's, that's where that, the, the emotion effectively behind those pieces comes from, which is people are realizing that they've made an assumption about a solidity of the ground underneath them that simply doesn't exist. A feeling of betrayal about yeah yeah, and that that I think I mean it's it is very difficult to say to people there are some places where higher education needs to be transformed in order for us to better support students or what have you, while at the same time operating in an era of of real contraction for everybody who isn't essentially NIH funded and at the top of the U.S. news list, because that the set of institutions that are just tuition driven and and you know making it work year to year it is it is hard to say here's some transformations that are going to cost you money up front will be good for the students down the line but will mean that you have to reorganize how you do things and what meredith Wu inherited in sweetbriar was essentially a university in which everyone had already been convinced of that proposition by an economic crisis um, and, 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 you know, as I was writing that piece, I just came to realize without a crisis, it is very difficult for any old school to transform. When you're working on a new school, it is just problem after problem after problem. And you well, don't, that's what people sign up for. Yeah, exactly. For, you don't have the luxury of saying, well, let's, let's wait on this one or why don't we do both or what have you. And so, in a way, the, the, the great engine of innovation in American higher ed has been the founding of new schools. But sadly, in the 21st century, the founding of new schools has ground almost to a halt while the closures are running at, you know, on average, half a dozen a year. So it will be a while before we have a mismatch of supply and demand that asks for new, new colleges to be founded which means I think most of the innovation is going to come from dealing with crises. You mentioned uh, a place in New Jersey. I'm not even that familiar with, uh, I confess, Bloomfield as a, as a likely next uh, candidate. Well, Bloomfield, it's a really interesting story because it is not the Antioch College, Hampshire, Sweetbriar, doesn't, you know, it's not a sort of front page of the New York Times. Here's a list of the famous alumni. Bloomfield is a real underrepresented minority serving local school who's, that also has run into financial trouble, but is also trying to transform themselves. 
And those, those experiments to me are really interesting because, you know, again, I use Mount Ida as an example because they were one of the most egregious shutdowns. The Mount Ida in, in Massachusetts, again, told students in April that they just had to find someplace else to go to school by May. And in the aftermath of that, the, the lawsuit found, to my horror, that the school did not owe the students a fiduciary duty, a fiduciary-like duty, uh, to warn them of this kind of potential, uh, this sort of potential shutdown. And what it said was really, each school will serve the students it has based on the quality of their own leadership. No one is going to regulate higher education to demand that the risks the students have for college closure uh, is uh, is is part of that school's duty. So the Bloomfield example is, I think, a really interesting example of a school that says we're not going to do that. We're not going out like that. And um, I, you know, again, because of my interest in community colleges and and colleges serving uh, typically underrepresented minorities and typically local populations, that is one of the schools that I hope does well, in part because they don't have access to this sort of famous alumni signed up and wrote a check thing. It is really going to be trench warfare to make it work. But the the possibility of it working may provide some some way to think through how should the less well-resourced schools that nevertheless do a lot of the work of educating people who are the first generation in their family to go to college uh, to, to actually persist and get a degree. I, I'm very curious about the other the other point that really struck me. When people, and you hear this a lot, even, you know, it's been going on for a while, but people complain about the high cost of college and they want college to be cheaper. But you mentioned that they want, the, you mentioned that they want a certain type of college option um, to be cheaper and, and that when when cheaper options like the online version come along, that's not what people are thinking, you know? Yeah, 100%. It's, it's just, it's the dumbest conversation in, in, in higher ed right now. And that's, that's clearing a high bar. Um, anybody who says they wish college was cheap is just demonstrating that they, they understand really almost nothing uh, about the American system of higher education. There are cheap schools literally by the thousands. There are, there are almost a thousand just community colleges, you know, regular private community colleges alone. There are these low cost online options. Many state schools, Maryland, Penn, uh, ASU, uh, offer a, a lower cost version of their online education. Um, what people mean when they say they want college to be cheaper is they want to pay less for the experiences they're interested in. They want subsidized college, not cost-controlled college. And the thing that particularly enrages me, I will say, is somebody who went through the kind of like, go to a college where you hang out on the verdant quad and play play frisbee with your friends model. Sure, that's the place I went to. Right. right. It took me a long time to realize that a lot of what's wrong with the conversation around higher ed is that the people who talk about college were the people who did well in college. And so we don't even see the problems because it worked for us, so why wouldn't it work for everybody, right? Uh, and the the when you when you dig into the I want college to be cheaper conversation, 
What you find is people who are willing to cut other people's services. To create an option that's not what they would have attended. Right, right. I went to, yeah, and, and right, so I, if I, when I was in college, I was in the theater all the time. The place I went had a lot of a lot of different theaters, big and small, you know, experimental and traditional. I bounced around basically all of them for four years. I never once set foot in the football stadium. I couldn't tell you where it was. Um, there were people who would, looking at the same institution, absolutely say, oh, my God, musical theater. Like, I would never. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly. Like, shut all that stuff down and save the money, but keep the football stadium. Right. And once you go around that whole circle, everybody would be willing to cut other people's, you know, the kind of services and activities that other people want. But you end up making a school only for theater kids, which would be frankly unbearable. Right. I did not go to a school that only had theater people in it. And the athletes did not go to a school that only had athletes and the musicians and the economists and everybody. Right. And. That the, the fantasy that what worked for me could be made more optimal if what worked for everybody else was cut and the money spent on what I like doesn't work even on its own terms because one of the things that people go to college for is some diversity of choice, right? There are a handful of you know conservatories and, and technical institutes and so on. There are some very highly focused institutions. But there's a reason that the largest campus in the country tends to be state universities with lots of different options. Now, I want to ask you, I, I want to ask you, too, because we had John Warner on um, talking about, you know, people should just push for more state funding of of higher ed because, you know, that would that would actually get at the answer. You know, it would actually make it so it's cheaper to go to a place that you're talking. But um, but it sounds like maybe you're maybe you're not that optimistic that that's going to happen in your pragmatist view. Yeah. Look, the, the 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 more state funding of higher ed is obviously the answer, which is to say there is only one actor in the entire system that could produce the kind of subsidy that made American higher ed the, the, the envy of the rest of the world, and that is the state governments. And what's widely appreciated is that after the Great Recession, after 2008, state governments began cutting. What's less widely appreciated, but shows up in the, in the book, Why Does College Cost So Much?, is that the philosophical commitment to that sort of growth ended in 1975. So, in fact, the, the 2008 reduction was a particularly steep drop, but in a, in a crisis that had already been unfolding. The narrative had changed, the political narrative around supporting state-funded schools. So widely unappreciated among my liberal colleagues is that America's golden age was highly masculinized and highly militarized. There were more women proportionally enrolled in college in 1940 than there were in 1965. That it took 30 years between the, the, the implementation of the GI Bill and female entry into both college and the workforce for the proportion to even get back to where it had been in 1940. And the rationale for almost all of the inrush of the money through the middle of the 60s, first the GI Bill, the demobilization of a, a military that was not going to go back to the farm, and then Sputnik, which kicked off the science gap, uh, and then the NIH and the rise of the medical research complex, the, 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 the state-directed nature of that expansion 
was very much in the kind of post-World War II consensus around the relationship of college to society. It was very much about onboarding and educating male leaders. And with the end of that consensus, which coincided for obvious reasons with the end of the Vietnam War, uh, colleges entered a territory in which funding colleges was no longer the sort of patriotic and militarized option it had been before. Um, I think in many cases, certainly my colleagues would, would, I think, choose not to have that funding rationale, not to have the it's all driven by Sputnik uh, funding rationale. But at the same time, the, the, the change in that, you know, that conviction among state legislatures has made it harder to support college and since 2008, really hard. Um, there is a rising potential bargain. You can see it at, at ASU where the state agrees to fully fund local students, to subsidize local students, and then the college does this recruiting across state lines. Arizona, interestingly, is trying to produce a curriculum that is aligned with California standards, so that if they open a campus in California, they can start to get California state money. Western Governors has done something analogous, not not identical, by by opening essentially state-named branches. That's right. One in Texas and some other places. Yeah. Right. So all of that is evidence in favor of the um, the largest universities will grow and the smallest universities will, the smallest colleges will, will, will collapse uh, scenario. There's counter evidence in some other directions. But given the really radical polarization among state governments around the giant referendum on everything, which is to say the constant political polarization of almost any matter that could come to a legislative vote, it seems likely to me that, you know, Wisconsin and California will increase the funding to their their state college systems, uh, and that South Carolina and Mississippi could very well decrease them. And what we'll end up with is the end of the consensus, which lasted for about 100 years, that to be a state essentially meant fielding a credibly good state enterprise in higher education, including PhD granting functions in the humanities. And that consensus seems to me to be not just at risk, but but actually already eroding in the current environment. And we could end up more like Canada, frankly, with a with a much more highly fragmented uh, system of universities where the 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 regulations, um, interestingly, the the sort of Canadian Canadian college regulations vary quite a bit, province to province. Um, the U.S. with a more hands-on sensibility and a much more of a sense of you know, people graduate from college and move to a different state kind of interoperability could just end up in a world where higher education in Alabama and higher education in Massachusetts become dramatically more different than they even are today. Well, wow. well, a lot of change. I wonder, is there an, is, do you have a sense of when you'll be done with this newsletter or is this now a, is this now a thing you're just going to stick with? You know, I mean, it's a thing I'm going to stick with and, and I will, you know, I, I will say that my, you know, there's no kind of overarching endpoint. Frankly, these are some things I need to think through and the newsletter is where I do it. Um, 
I think one big change will be when I've done enough of the kind of this is how I think we should think about this, that I start getting around to proposals rather than descriptions. There are some things I think we should do, like states should start looking at networking their community colleges, sharing course catalogs so that each college only has to offer one or two online classes, but everyone in the state can use them kind of thing. Um, when I get around to that, that will be a phase change of some sort. Um, don't know when that will be, sometime this year, presumably. Um, but yeah, there's no, there's no either final, ep, you know, final episode plan, but nor is it something I think will go on forever. I, there's a certain kind of wrestling with the stuff I'm trying to do, and that's what the newsletter's for. I love it. Well, I can't wait to see maybe on Twitter, someone will, will let us know if they feel like you've jumped the shark. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, yes. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. If, um, that, I don't think that time has come yet. Well, honestly, thank you so much for, for sharing all of these thoughts. And we'll, uh, we'll hope to check in again sometime. Um, th- this has been great. Very good. This has been the Ed Surge podcast. Every week, we bring you a conversation like this one. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Music this episode by Montplacier. We'll be back next week with more about the future of learning. Thanks for listening.